and it's Natasha Crane. I know it's been a couple of weeks since I've done an episode and I apologize for that. I said that I really want to do this consistently and by consistently I mean have a new episode going each week. So I will try very hard to do that. It won't always be possible while I'm working on my newest book. Uh, My deadline is coming up at the end of June so I'm working really hard right now on that. The release date, if you're curious, is going to be in February, which sounds like a long time away, but feels like it's around the corner for me. But I am really, really excited about this book. It's called Faithfully Different, and it's all about believing, thinking, and living more clearly from a biblical worldview in the midst of what can be some very heavy secular pressure in our culture. So this is my first non-parenting book. Uh, It's, of course, for parents, but it's for many other people too. And I'm just really excited about it. Well, in today's episode, we're going to talk about a closely related subject to what I'm talking about in my book, and that is how can Christians become better critical thinkers in a secular culture? More specifically, how can we better understand the differences between a biblical worldview and a secular worldview so that understanding can inform how we evaluate secular ideas. That's what we're going to talk about in this episode, and I know that was a big mouthful, but I promise that it's going to get more clear really soon. I think that when we talk about critical thinking, this is something that is of interest to a lot of people. I know that when I asked for episode ideas in response to the giveaway I did in my second episode, this topic of critical thinking and logic came up a lot. So it's something that a lot of people do sense the importance of today because there are so many competing ideas that are floating around. And so I'm excited to tackle it in this episode. There are going to be probably many more episodes on critical thinking in some other contexts, but for today's purpose, we're going to talk about the question that I just posed. So we should probably start by just defining what we mean when we're saying critical thinking. It's kind of a buzzword today, especially for parents. I think we hear a lot that we need to make sure our kids have these great critical thinking skills, right? Our culture wants to always talk about critical thinking, and that's a good thing, but we can mean a lot of different things by it. So while you can come up with all kinds of definitions, I'm going to use this one. It's simply using good reasoning to arrive at your conclusions, okay? Just using good reasoning to arrive at our conclusions. And that sounds simple, but there are all kinds of layers that go into it. And many of those layers are specific to a subject or a situation. So even though we're talking about good reasoning in general and good ways of thinking, there are a lot of things that will go into it depending on what you're talking about. Obviously, that means that in one podcast episode, we're not going to tackle the entire subject of critical thinking for Christians because there are so many different areas of this. So we'll definitely come back to more topics in future episodes. If you were one of the people who said you wanted an episode on logic and critical thinking, and I'm not quite hitting on the type that you're thinking of today, rest assured we'll be coming back to this a lot in the future. So before we get started with the specific topic today, there are a couple of overarching points that I want to leave you with to think about critical thinking in general. Number one, no worldview owns good reasoning. And maybe that sounds sort of obvious to you, but it's important to say because a lot of times in today's world, you will hear skeptics of religion say something that implies reason or at least good reason, and religion are at odds. And they consider themselves to be representatives of the party of reason. In other words, it's sort of this false dichotomy of saying, 
Well, you either believe in reason and therefore don't believe in God, or you can be superstitious and have a religious worldview. When people say this kind of thing, though, they are not defining reason nor are they defining faith in accurate ways. Reason is the process that you go through with your thinking and it's not specific to a worldview. So you can be a Christian who reasons well, or you can be a Christian who reasons poorly. And similarly, you can be an atheist who reasons well, or an atheist who reasons poorly. So don't be fooled into thinking that good reasoning is specific to any one worldview. Number two, this is not the same as skepticism. So skepticism is coming to an issue from a perspective of doubt. It's sort of your default position. You are skeptical of things. Any claim you come to, you're automatically skeptical of. Critical thinking is different than that. And it's important to realize because sometimes people confuse the two. And they think that in order to be a critical thinker, you need to immediately doubt everything that you're coming to. But critical thinking is applying tools of reasoning to a given claim claim to form a judgment. So you're not necessarily coming to it from a starting point of doubt or affirmation. And that's not to say that we can ever be perfectly unbiased, but at least we're attempting to consider claims in some objective sense when we're using critical thinking skills. And sometimes by using those critical thinking skills, we come to a place of saying, well, I doubt that a certain claim is true. So it's not that you never arrive at a doubtful conclusion. But it just means you're not starting from that place. You are working to reason well about some kind of claim so that you can come to a well-informed, well-reasoned type of decision or judgment, depending on what you're looking at. So those are just a couple of important points that I see people getting confused on a lot in culture that we need to be really clear about. So we understand reason is not synonymous with any particular worldview and critical thinking is not synonymous with skepticism. Okay, so let's dive into today's subject. We're going to talk about what I think is the most important overarching issue for understanding and comparing a biblical and secular worldview. And when I started to really process this as the key driving difference between the worldviews, I got to tell you, everything started making so much more sense to me. And so I'm hoping that this is going to be a really valuable lens through which you can look at these things as well. And this is something that I talk quite a bit about in my book that I'm writing at the moment. And so it's sort of a, a passionate topic for me. But I'm going to describe this to you and, and kind of break down this key driver of the difference between worldviews for a while. And then after that, I'm going to apply it. And we're going to go through several statements that you will commonly hear today. And I'm going to apply what we've been talking about to those statements so you can get an idea of how to respond. I think if you ask a lot of Christians, what do you think the key difference is between a biblical worldview, in other words, one rooted in the Bible, and a secular worldview, I think that most Christians would probably say, well, it's the Bible, that the difference is the Bible. And that's true to a degree, but I think that it's more helpful to dig to a layer under that. And here's what it is. The driving difference between our worldviews is not about the Bible per se. It's about authority. 
The question is, from where do you get your authority? This is the question that can make sense of so many of our cultural issues. And it's a little bit broader and more general for understanding differences than saying the Bible specifically. And I think that as we kind of tease this out and go through some examples, you'll start to see why I think this is actually the most helpful way that we can see things. Because it's not just about how we see things and saying, well, we get our authority from the Bible. It's also understanding the nature of authority in the secular worldview. So that's why bringing this up a level to a generalization about authority and not talking specifically just about our book is very helpful to do. So let's break this down a bit with some definitions of religious and secular as a starting point. We'll start with religion. So as with anything, people will debate definitions all day long, but for all intents and purposes, a religion is a worldview that systematically defines reality based on the existence of a god or gods. So that would be just sort of a general description. Here's what we need to understand. By their very nature, religions are authoritative for their adherents because they not only describe reality, they also prescribe correct human response. Okay, so Christianity, for example, is authoritative for Christians because we believe in a God who defines reality, including what is right and wrong. So religions are authoritative for the people who adhere to them. Said a slightly different way, to be religious is to be committed to the authority of a particular religion. Now, let's compare that to a secular perspective, a secular worldview. Now, what does it mean to be secular? That is a complex word. In fact, I spent an entire chapter breaking this down in the new book, so we're not going to go overly in-depth here. It has a lot of different meanings depending on the context, but a basic definition, just the most basic definition of secular, would probably be irreligious. So to be irreligious is to not be committed to the authority of a particular religion. We could talk about that at a society level, meaning a secular society, or we could talk about that at an individual level. Today, we're focused on individuals with a secular worldview. In other words, they are not committed to the authority of a particular religion in their own life. Here's the key thing to understand. Being secular doesn't mean you have no authority in your life. It means you're the authority. This is it, you guys. This is what you really have to think about when you put these pieces together. When you start to see everything as a matter of authority and where a person gets their authority from, everything starts to make so much more sense. For us as Christians, we look to God as our authority who has revealed his will and who he is and his moral requirements for us in the Bible. We have revelation, in other words. And for those who are irreligious, meaning they are not committed to the authority of any particular religion, they're ultimately looking toward themselves. It's self-authority versus the authority of revelation. That's the key difference that we're looking at. I want to take you through several examples to show you how this plays out. But before we do that, we have to really better understand how this idea of authority shapes the secular worldview. I think most of us already have a pretty good idea of what that means from a biblical perspective. But what does that mean? How does it play out 
from a secular perspective. There are lots and lots of implications of this, but I want to focus on three of the biggest ones. So let's start with a view of God. Now, if you're thinking about this and you're thinking, okay, secular view of God, that means irreligious, you might be thinking a secular view of God means godless. But that's not really the case. And this is an important nuance to understand. So only about 10% of Americans say they don't believe in any higher power or spiritual force at all. That means 90% believe something or someone exists out there. And whatever that might mean to a given person, I don't know. That's going to be kind of an individual thing. But there's no lack of spirituality among most Americans. However, that doesn't mean they're not secular. People who are irreligious might have any number of spiritual beliefs. What connects them is that they ultimately root their authority in the self. So secularism isn't inherently opposed to a person having some kind of privately held belief in the supernatural. For some people, it is for some individuals, but in general, secularism is not. As we just saw, the vast majority of people in this country, in America, do have these supernatural beliefs. But, and this is a big but, those beliefs are not based on some kind of revelation from an authoritative supernatural being. Without revelation of that nature, there's nothing a person has to believe. There are no requirements. This is why a celebrity could publicly thank God for something without much notice. But if they were to talk about their love for Jesus specifically and or declare their view that the Bible is the authoritative word of God, they would be mercilessly attacked. See, the secular worldview is fine with people believing in a generic God who requires nothing because he has given no revelation, but not with a specific God who requires everything. I hope you can see that difference there because it's really, really important for us to understand that this is the secular view of God. It doesn't mean there is no God in that view. It means that if this supernatural being exists, he hasn't revealed himself or his will for us in any reliable, obvious way. So ultimately, it comes back to the authority of the self to define those beliefs and to define what's right for me. Self-authority versus the authority of revelation. Let's look at how that plays out then with the view of man. We're going to apply some similar thinking, so I hope you start to see this pattern here. In a secular worldview, there's no divine revelation on the nature of humanity to look to, so what we can collectively know about ourselves, at least with any kind of confidence, is going to be limited to what we know from science about our physical nature at any given time. So what is that? Well, the mainstream scientific consensus is that all life developed from a single-celled organism that lived roughly 3.5 billion years ago. According to evolutionary theory, the process of natural selection acting on random mutations to DNA has produced the wide variety of life forms that we see today, including humankind. Furthermore, it's typically assumed that the evolutionary process is blind and purposeless. In other words, it's not directed toward any goal. This is an important part of things. And I should have a side note here that there are Christians who accept evolution but believe it was directed by God. So this view is called theistic evolution. That's a subject for another day, but I at least wanted to acknowledge that. So 
on the naturalistic assumptions of mainstream science, in other words, the assumptions that the natural world is all that exists, man is not the product of a purposeful creator, but rather the product of an indifferent chance process. If that's all we are, we belong only to ourselves and our meaning and purpose are completely determined by us. There's nothing more to us. There's no author of our life. There's no, there's no one imbuing us with any inherent value. We're just on our own. It's our authority, not God, not a creator. And I should note that even those who would say, well, I believe that there is a God or some kind of being who created me, that doesn't take away from this idea that the authority still comes back to ourselves because that God, if he exists, hasn't revealed anything that we're looking to to understand ourselves. So even for people who say, yeah, I believe I was created, they're still going to have this secular view of mankind that we're still responsible for ourselves. At the end of the day, we are here and responsible for ourselves, we define our meaning, we define our purpose because we have no author of our lives who has told us more. There's been no revelation. So self-authority comes back to play here. Now let's look at the third view, the view of morality. I hope you're seeing this pattern here of how a person's worldview understanding of authority shapes their view of so many things. If you're thinking that the secular authority of the self would mean that morality is therefore up to the individual, since there's no higher than human source of revelation to tell us otherwise, you would be thinking very consistently. That would be the logical implication of everything that we've been talking about. But here's where things get interesting. And and I have to say, I've been thinking so much about this issue in particular as I've been writing because it's fascinating to consider how this would be the logical implication of a secular worldview, but it's not actually how society sees most issues of morality. Let's break this down a little bit. In one sense, secular individuals do see morality as something that each person should decide. So there is a clear sense of, hey, who are you to tell me anything in our culture today? And that is consistent with a worldview built on self-authority. But have you noticed that at the same time, there are all kinds of ways you can go morally wrong today in the eyes of our culture? If you say something that doesn't fit with what is commonly considered to be morally acceptable today, you're going to get canceled. You're going to be shamed. You're going to be pushed out of any position that you're in. You are going to be brought to the light so that everyone can see you and ultimately cancel you. This is the kind of culture that we're in. So today's secular view of morality is not that there's no morality that applies to everyone, even though that would be consistent with a world view rooted in self-authority, it's that what is moral is determined by popular consensus. Just think about that for a minute. The morality isn't coming from an authority that's higher than human, as it is for a Christian or for another religious person who has a similar theistic kind of understanding. It's just determined by the group. It's determined by society. 
Okay, so now that we have established the key difference between a secular and biblical worldview, which is this matter of authority, and we've seen what that means in terms of a secular view of God and of man and of morality, let's take this understanding and apply it to some common types of sentiments that we're hearing in culture. And we can see how this issue of authority just comes full center. And I also want to give you some examples of of how you can actually respond to someone making these claims in a way that will help them understand the same thing. So let's let's look at some examples of that. Okay, the first one. Let's say that someone says that the Christian view of sexuality is fill in the blank with things like hateful, repressive, stupid, any kind of negativity about a Christian view of sexuality. Now, a lot of well-meaning Christians will, in a conversation like that, go straight to, well, here's what the Bible says. God says this. And although it's never wrong to quote the Bible, it's never wrong to share God's word with someone, of course we want to do that. I think we can have some far more fruitful conversations if we help people understand better where we're coming from in a worldview perspective. So let's think for a minute from a secular perspective. Remember, everyone's their own boss. It's all about the self-authority, their view of mankind. The assumption is that if there's a supernatural being, he hasn't revealed his will in any kind of clear and reliable way, so everyone's just on their own journey. If that's your assumption, then of course you're going to think that a Christian view is repressive and hateful and it's stupid because your belief is that everyone is their own authority. So my reply to someone would be in this kind of situation something like this. I understand that you don't believe the Bible is God's word. So from your perspective, it's silly to base my view of sexuality on it. If there's no God or if there's a God, but he hasn't revealed anything about his moral requirements of us, then sexuality is just something that would be up to every individual. I get that. I I totally see what you're saying from your perspective. But I hope you can see from my perspective also just to understand a little bit more about where I'm coming from. Christians believe that God exists and not only that he exists, but that he's actually revealed the truth about reality and his moral requirements in the Bible. So if that's true, if that's a correct worldview, then it's not stupid or repressive. It's just what the creator of the universe who has authority over everyone and everything has said himself. So I understand our disagreement here is at a worldview level. I'm getting my authority on this from the Bible, which I believe to be God's very word. And you're getting your authority on this from yourself. And each of these sides is consistent within our worldviews. I, I think that when, and now I'm just talking about what I just said, I think that when we answer in a way like this, yes, it's a lot wordier and it doesn't have to be that long, but I think that it helps people to actually see that we're not trying to be hateful. We're not thinking that we are above anyone else. We're not being arrogant about this. We just have a different worldview perspective in terms of what we believe to be true and where we're getting that information. Now, this is, and I will always point this out because it's so important, but this is, again, where apologetics becomes so important because all of this should lead to a question of, well, how do we know who's right? Okay, yes, I understand this is your worldview and this is my worldview, but how do we know which one is actually correct? And that's where we get into apologetics, how we make a case for and defend the truth of Christianity. But a lot of times I think that apologetics sort of falls 
falls on deaf ears because people go straight to the apologetics without helping anyone understand, just clearly speaking, what does each worldview have to say about this? What is the underlying rationale and understanding of it? So I think that this kind of response helps people because you're starting by saying, I understand that, and you're sort of summarizing from their perspective so they can see that you're getting that. And then you're saying, but I hope you can also see that from my perspective, the following things are true. And that way we can help people to just process this a little bit with us. And by the way, that goes for any kind of moral issue. I'm using sexuality as an example here because it comes up so often in culture. But this could be the case with anything. It could be the case with abortion, for example. If you're interested in that issue in particular, you can go back to my very first episode, America's Downward Spiral. And I talked about how to discuss the issue of abortion from a Christian perspective, what is consistent with that, versus from a secular perspective and what is consistent with that. So if that's something of interest, you can check out that episode. Now let's look at a second example. The, another kind of thing that you will hear a lot today is some version of, hey, live and let live. If you believe something, then live that way. Let others live their way. So this one is more of a, hey, get out of the way type of comment. Go ahead and believe what you want, but why do you have to kind of come in here and tell others what they should believe? This is also very much an authority issue. So let's do our analysis again. From a secular perspective, every person is the authority on themselves. So it would make no sense for one person to tell another person how they should live. No one in that perspective has superior knowledge. But let's compare that to what Christians believe. Christians believe that God has revealed his will for us in the Bible, and there are societal issues that we need to speak to. God has told us to speak truth into our culture and to be salt and light. So if abortion, for example, is murder, and Christians believe that the innocent taking of life is murder based on what the Bible says, that's not something we can sit back and let others do just because it's not us, and it's not in involving us directly. So again, let's look at a sample response on something like this. We're going to use a very similar format. I might say something like as follows. Hey, I understand that from your perspective, there's no God, so no one should claim they have a better way of living or that they know how someone else should live their life. I understand that from your worldview, that just wouldn't make sense. But I hope you can see from the Christian perspective as well, so you at least understand where I'm coming from. Christians believe that God exists and has revealed his will and his moral law for us in the Bible, and that the innocent taking of life is wrong for all people. And God has also told Christians that we are to speak his truth to the world around us. So if God exists and has revealed this in the Bible, then Christians are just following through on his commands. And that's why we feel that this is objectively wrong. It's something that is wrong for all people, regardless of a person's opinion. And this is something that he wants us to speak truth about. When you approach it from this perspective, and of course you can add to the comment that I just started there, this is just to kind of get it going, but when you approach it from that perspective, it's not going to work with everyone. Some people are still going to, you know, pass right over all of your carefully nuanced words, but at least you're trying to help them see this from, hey, we're coming from two completely different worldviews on this, and it makes sense that we're going to see things differently, but at least let's try to see it from one another's perspective. 
Let's look at a third example. Another type of comment that we hear a lot today is something to the effect of, hey, don't you want to be on the right side of history? And usually this is said in the context of if you don't agree with the secular moral consensus right now on whatever the issue is, you're going to eventually feel guilty for having been on the wrong side of things when history's clearly moving in a different direction than where you are. So Again, this is completely an authority issue because here's the question. How do we define the right side of history? What is the right side of history? Even if history goes in a completely different direction in terms of what is morally acceptable than where Christians are, just because it goes in that direction doesn't mean that that was necessarily the right direction. It all turns on how you define that. So from a secular perspective, the right side of history is going to be wherever history is headed based on the secular moral consensus. And again, this is really interesting because it doesn't necessarily follow in a secular worldview that there is going to be some kind of morality that should be applied to everyone. But still, this is the idea today that whatever the majority thinks, whatever's popular consensus is what's correct. And there's a lot of this kind of chronological snobbery that's going on. And what I mean by that is just this belief that society is going to continue to progress in some kind of moral direction and that wherever we were before is going to be morally inferior to where we are now. And so when people say you want to be on the right side of history because they're assuming that things are going to continue progressing in a better direction and that direction is wherever we are right now and what the group thinks, that is going to be back to a secular view view of morality. From a Christian perspective, the right side of history is going to be God's side of history. It's going to be whatever God has said is truth, whatever God has said is reality. That is going to be the Christian perspective because God is our authority. And if God, once again, has revealed who he is and what his will is and what his moral law is, and we have that in the Bible, then wherever history goes really has nothing to do with what is right necessarily because we get our authority from the Bible no matter where the group or civilizations are going to head. And so again, if you're in a conversation with someone about this, you can point out, hey, I understand from your perspective that right now things are changing. The moral consensus is changing in our country and things are moving in a different direction than where they've been in the past. Even if everything goes in that direction and I am on a different end of where history is going, I want you to understand that from my worldview perspective that I would still be on the right side because if God exists and has revealed all these things to us, then that's going to be the truth about reality. So the right side of history really is about being on the right side of where God would have me be. And you can just explain sort of in these objective terms of saying, from my perspective, then that's how I would see it. But I understand from your perspective, if God doesn't exist or if maybe a God exists who hasn't revealed anything, that the right side is wherever the group is going. These are just two completely different worldviews. I hope these examples are are helping to kind of solidify this understanding of the authority issue. But let me just give you a couple more quick ones to end on here. 
here's a, a really common one that we hear all the time today, and it's been talked about quite a lot, so I don't want to beat a dead horse on this, but I do want to apply the authority perspective to it, and that is this whole issue of follow your heart or be true to your, who you are, this kind of thing. This is not just some kind of cutesy saying that you see on mugs and signs. This is actually a major worldview statement. I don't know if you've thought about that before, but it's not just something that's shallow or it's kind of like silly wisdom or whatever, which is maybe how I've thought about it in the past. It's an, it is directly a statement of worldview, and here's why. Your heart, when we say follow your heart, is just another word for your feelings. So this is the ultimate appeal to self-authority because only you know how you feel, so only you can guide yourself if feelings do indeed take priority in life. There are no external factors that can guide you. It's just you. So in effect, this statement just affirms that you are your own self-sufficient expert on reality. I bet you didn't think that the last time that you saw follow your heart. Maybe you weren't thinking of it as such a deep worldview issue, but it really truly is. It harkens back to all these issues of authority because it's about the authority of the self. So of course we're going to hear this type of thinking in secular statements and messages all the time because it fits right in with that. You're the authority on you. So follow your heart. Don't follow anything else. It's all about you. It's about being authentic to yourself, being in touch with yourself so that you can follow your feelings. And of course, if you've been following the train of thought here from a biblical perspective, we're not following our heart. We're not relying on self-authority, but rather we're relying on the authority of God and what he has objectively revealed, not how we feel. The heart is deceitful above all things. So we don't want to follow our hearts. And the reason is because this is an authority issue. Let's do one more here to wrap this up. And I hear all kinds of versions of this, but it's some kind of version of I don't want to put God in a box or what do you why do you think that you know more about God than I do? These kinds of comments that are sort of an appeal to arrogance that why why are you Christians? Why do you think that you are in this position to speak whatever truths you think into culture? So when people make this kind of comment, they're suggesting that if we make a claim about who God is and what he wants for us, that we're somehow placing limits on him. But this again is a difference on starting assumptions about whether there's a God who has revealed himself. So if the Bible is his revelation, then God himself is the one who chose what to reveal and what to limit our knowledge of. In other words, God drew his own box around how we should understand him. We're not the ones putting him there when we share what he said. So if our authority as Christians is God who has revealed his will through the Bible, then when we share what's there, we are only resorting to our worldview based on his authority. When other people are saying, hey, how do you know what God wants? They're working for the assumption that he hasn't revealed these things. Sometimes maybe they just haven't read the Bible and they think it's not revealed in the Bible. That's a whole other thing. But generally speaking, when people say that, they're assuming that if there is this God out there, that he has not told us all these things. And therefore, you're kind of arrogant for suggesting that you know more about God than they do. 
But even in this situation, if we pull it back to the authority level, this is a good opportunity to use that same approach that I used with these other questions and saying, hey, I understand that if you don't take the Bible to be God's word, that this is his reliable revelation that he has given us, that we don't really, no one's on a better foot than anyone else in terms of knowing about him because he hasn't told us anything. He's just kind of this mysterious being who is out there. And I don't know anything more about him than you do. You don't know anything more about him than I do. I get it from that perspective. But if God has revealed himself through the Bible and the Bible is God's word, which is what I believe, then everything looks different because he's told us about himself. And there's a lot that we can know. And we don't want to speak for him in any way that he hasn't already spoken. But when he has, we can look to the Bible and we can say, this is what it says. So comparing those worldviews and the authority there makes all the difference. I want to leave you with one little nugget of interest that I found while researching my book, and it comes from the website of the Satanic Temple. Uh, While that sounds like its own kind of religion, the Satanic Temple is actually just an organization that exists to promote secularism. It's a really fascinating example of what I was talking about with how even in a secular worldview today, everyone still is going along with the immoral consensus. It's not that people just don't have any morality at all or that it's completely relative to the individual. And you can see this with the Satanic Temple. So their tagline is empathy, reason, advocacy. Their mission states that they, quote, encourage benevolence and empathy, reject tyrannical authority, advocate practical common sense, oppose injustice, and undertake noble pursuits. I bet you didn't know that. It's interesting because they don't leave any of that to the imagination, how you define these things. If you look at their website, they detail all these values that they fight for. And for example, they are definitely fighting for what they call bodily autonomy. So they fight very hard for abortion rights. Ironically, however, they state this. A unifying attribute of all Satanists is our embrace of our outsider status. Satanists adhere to the principles of individual sovereignty. (laughs) Think about that. They adhere to the principles of individual sovereignty. In other words, self-authority. It's everything we've been talking about. So aside from the shock value of their name, the Satanic Temple, there's little that makes them an outsider to mainstream secular thought as they're positioning themselves. The principle of quote-unquote individual sovereignty is ultimately what defines a secular worldview. The Satanic Temple might think that they're unique, but they are just one of many organizations today that promote the secular moral values upheld by a popular consensus. I just love that they actually put it straight out there that they're all about individual sovereignty. That really does sum it up, doesn't it? And it sums it up for a lot of people today. I hope this episode has been helpful to you in starting to think about things from a broader perspective, thinking critically about how we can look at the difference between worldviews. Like I said, we can apply critical thinking in so many different ways. This is just one topic within a much, much bigger bucket of things, but we will come back to more of those in the future. 
Thank you guys so much for listening today. And if you haven't already taken just a second to leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts, I would really appreciate if you would do that. It really helps with getting the show boosted up into rankings so that more people can find out about it. And if you can directly tell your friends too, that would be fantastic. If you're finding value in this, drop somebody an email or a text shared on social media. I really appreciate the support. Thanks so much for listening and I will talk with you soon.